0: Welcome to Deep Drinks Podcast, where the drinks are deep and the conversations are deeper. Welcome, everyone, to the first ever live uh, episode of Deep Drinks Podcast. Uh, today, we have a very, very, very special guest. He was the first doctor we ever had on um, the podcast, and his first ever returning guest on the first ever live episode, uh, so everyone knows that it's Dr. Josh. But first, I'm going to go through a few quick announcements. For those listening on podcasting apps in the future, this episode was live, so if you want to join in the future and you want to ask questions to our guests, um, you can subscribe at youtube.com slash deepdrinks, and for those watching at home right now, check out and subscribe to youtube.com slash deepdrinks. Um, another thing is we recently did an awesome panel uh, so um, on hell. So if you're someone who struggles with an intense fear of hell, um, we had a panel. Dr. Josh was um, part of the panel and we went over hell's history, getting over the fear. Uh, if you know someone or you yourself have got an intense fear of hell, whether you be Christian, atheist or, or whatever you are, I recommend going and checking out that episode, that panel. It was a really good time. Um, Also, uh, the last thing is um, at the end of the show, we'll be asking your questions. Um, So make sure you save up the good questions for right at the end and then we'll uh, be answering them or Dr. Josh will be answering them. So with all that said, I'd like to welcome uh, Dr. Josh.
1: Good to be back. Uh, yeah, I don't know there if, he is. I, I don't know if I'm a good representative of
0: the uh, first doctor to have on, but you know no. you take what,
1: you, you, take what no. you can get, you know.
0: No, okay, so I, I was um hesitant to uh to to do this. well I, I last time I introduced you, I it was like a novel, right? And I, I had to <laughs> and every time you come on, you always downplay yourself. So I have to I have to say this. Um I've get put a little introduction together, but I just want people if you don't know who Dr. Josh is, most people do know who you are but if you don't know i just want to introduce you and your credentials right so dr josh that's you graduated with a phd in Assyriology from john hopkins university in 2017 prior to that dr josh obtained a bachelor of science in religion from liberty university a master's of theology in old testament from capital bible seminary a master's of near eastern studies from john hopkins university and what translation does josh use in his book you may ask huh Well, he uses his own. The show-off uses his own translation of the Hebrew Bible. That's right. He translates the Hebrew Bible. Dr. Josh has been a Christian, a chaplain in the Air Force, a pastor, and an atheist, and an author. For the first time, um, Dr. Josh appeared on Deep Drinks. We spent two hours drinking American whiskey and talking about slavery. Uh, It was much more fun than it sounds. (laughs) Today, uh, we welcome Dr. Dr. Josh back to talk about his new book, volume two of an atheist handbook to the old testament how was that Welcome, guys.
1: i mean you know uh i have to follow that now that's the problem you know (laughs) people are people are primed you know what's he (laughs) gonna do but Uh, you
0: know i'll give it i'll give it my uh
1: my college try you know
0: oh you're you you always undersell yourself so (laughs) your new book is awesome i must say so I have with me here, and I'll just do a quick little promotion. This is the first book we discussed, Did the Old Testament Endorse Slavery? If you don't have two hours to watch us um, talk about it, um, the answer is yes, it did. Uh, and it wasn't nice slavery either. Um, hmm. <laughs> secondly, uh, I read this book, uh, Did the, um, the Atheist Handbook to the Old Testament, Volume 1. Um, this was fantastic. I was like, okay, this is awesome. Um, you know i completed ministry college um, back in 2009 and this book would have saved me just in its recaps of what happens in the bible Um, on so many assignments um it's really brilliant but then you somehow ended up one-upping yourself with volume two Uh, and i don't have a physical copy with me so you're going to hold it up but there we go volume two is there it's out it's amazing i'm only four chapters in and it's it's crazy well, I, I really appreciate that. It was, um, it
1: was, I, as I say, it's, it was fun to write. I, I don't know if it was fun for Megan for me to write it, uh, particularly given that, uh, on Wednesday night I was on, uh, on with Oz and you know, talk of volume three started. Then she came into the chat in yeah. all caps. <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of uh, which, you know, I just have to give a shout out. You know, here's my here's my Tangang mug, from which Tangang. I'm
0: sipping my rum. Yep, we got a uh, we got some Tangang peeps in the chat already. We got Oz, uh, we got Jenna. Um, oh yeah, we got we got the whole we got the crew here. Um, but. Um, uh, one 10, ten is awesome um but one thing you were just mentioning is when megan was saying no in volume three i, me- I sent her a message and i said oh um uh, josh said uh, i'm writing a book i've never done it before josh said uh uh that you you were happy to edit it for me so thanks for that It's <laughs> <She's> like, <"No." laughs> oh my gosh like i sometimes i wonder
1: uh what what is worse uh writing the book or making sure you get all the spelling and grammatical errors out of it. Um, yeah, because uh, you know, and we were very fortunate this time. We hired uh, Dr. Kip Davis to edit it, and uh, you know, not only did he, you know, catch ninety-nine percent of that stuff, but he gave some amazing um, insights and, and obviously, lots and lots of comments, um, many of which made their way into the book. So. Uh, this has been in a lot of ways, a team effort. Um, you know, Dr. Kenneth Atkinson, uh, who's an archeologist, uh, you know, he, he read through the entirety of it and made really substantive comments. And it's been peer reviewed, uh, by some pretty big names. Um, Eric Klein being one of them, which I was really excited about. Um, so, Yeah, if for anybody doesn't know, Eric Klein is uh, the author of Eleven Seventy Seven, which is an insanely popular book, and he's incredibly talented. Uh, Uh, Anyway, but yeah, I'm excited.
0: I I I had a um, interaction with one of your uh, haters, maybe or fans, Um, on uh, probably a hater on uh, Twitter, um, and they said, you know, does anyone take does any scholar actually take Dr. Josh's work seriously? Yes. Um, and I was like, 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 um, you know, and Megan replied and said, you know, he doesn't post fringe ideas. He posts consensus. And, um, and it's like, and I was like, what would be the point of him writing a book, the atheist handbook to the old Testament, if he's just going to make up a bunch of stuff that is consensus, like the whole point is to point yeah. to consensus so that yeah. atheists and Christians can have better dialogues around, the conversations around the uh, yeah. Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. So, I it, mean, it's like it defeats the purpose of the book. I mean, I will say, I will say this. Um,
1: I'm not a brave soul, uh, and what I mean by that is, uh, I I don't like <clears throat> being told that I'm wrong about something not because of like my pride, but because I feel so so much like I'm being this huge disappointment to whoever tells me that. Uh, So by the way, going through my doctoral program was a nightmare Uh, because that's all it is, right? It's just telling you how you're wrong all the time. Um, So when I write something, the thing that I'm the most terrified of uh, is somebody coming back and saying, did you did you actually read all the secondary literature on this did you actually read you know there's this tablet that you didn't see did you actually make a score of that sumerian text you were talking about um you know so i uh i i I try very very hard for very selfish reasons to uh in these types of books to present what it is that the, the the mainstream scholarship is and consensus if you can find it um so even if that consensus is, well, it's not that, right? We don't yeah. know what it is, but it's not aliens, right? Um, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Exactly. I, I, so. I do remember. Um, what, what I really, what I've, what I've noticed. In your book is. It reminds me a little bit of. Um, there's this uh, nutritionist um, doctor I kind of follow who does all this stuff. He's Dr. Gregor of Nutrition Facts. And one thing that people don't like about his content is he always and usually ends with a big question mark. These studies say this. This study says this. Eh, it's probably good in this direction, but we're not sure. Yeah. And it's it's so different to you know the lemon detox diet. You know, lose fifty pounds in thirty right. days, kind of like all that kind of stuff. So it's uh, I, I noticed that with your book, it's it's um, it's kind of. Up in the air a lot of the time as well, where you you just you go, you go. This is the this is what we do know. This is what we don't know, and that's what the chapter is called, yeah. the Exodus. What we can say and what we cannot say about it. Yeah. So um, yeah. I thought it was an interesting. It, was, it seemed like an honest way to to approach the subject. I mean, so I
1: was I was actually um, listening to uh, Larry Garrity, Lawrence Garrity, who I I cite in the book, uh, do a lecture. Uh, on the way home today, and like all he was doing was essentially uh, presenting the main theories on the Exodus. And you know what he says is, okay, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you the fringe ones, and then I'm gonna tell you what the consensus is. If you believe that the Exodus has some historical validity, right? When it comes to the time frame. What is it that everybody, if somebody thinks this that there's something that happened here, historically speaking, um, whatever it is, at whatever level it is, whether it's a kernel of truth or, you know, it's the, the biblical texts are inspired and historically reliable. Uh, the consensus is that it happened in the 13th century, right? Um, now, there in no way, he, he's, he's not then saying, okay, now here's the right answer. Right? Because somebody like Ronald Hendel would say, no, there's cultural memory, right? Uh, uh, or, you know, uh, uh, Finkelstein and uh, Deaver kind of go back and forth about where the, the Israelites came from going up into the highlands during the conquest or in that, that period of formation. Um, so it's, the, the book is not designed in most places to tell you what the right answer is. Just like in volume one, you know, I, I love Joel Baden, love him to death, but I haven't obviously done anywhere near the level of research into the formation of the Pentateuch that he has or somebody like Conrad Schmidt has um, or Thomas Romer or any of these guys. And so, you know, when I wrote the chapter on did Moses write the Pentateuch, that was the only that's the only question I was trying to answer. Not is the documentary hypothesis the right way to go is more of, you know, uh, some supplementary hypothesis and layering. Are there two major redactions? Like I'm not getting into which one I I might tell you a little bit about each one. But I can't suss that out. Right. I don't have the expertise to do that. People devote their careers to it. Um, But what they all agree on is that one guy named Moses didn't write it. And that's all that really matters for the book.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Um, so I want to dive into your book. Um, but first, like it's 10 in the morning here, and it's a crime in Australia not to be drinking on Saturday mo- at Saturday morning at 10 a.m. So you've chosen Captain Morgan's spice rum. We've got a little bit left, so you're already sipping it out of your uh, 10 gang is it 10-gang cup? Uh it's yeah. and my eyes yeah
1: my ms has been acting up more recently so my eyes have gotten worse but it says yeah the atheist network group and i think it says there is no god at the bottom
0: <laughs> <laughs> i love tang it's so good um
1: i thought it was doing... a missed opportunity though i have to be honest because there is no god it's good but they could have said there ain't no god tang there ain't no God. Oh, God. oh yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Some something else that uh that I came up with a couple of days ago. House of Genius. Pain. Do you remember House of Pain? No. The Wait. group House of Pain. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, their, their most famous song was that I know of, Jump Around, right? Jump. Jump,
0: yep, yep, yep.
1: House of Pain. H O. hop around no i'm just saying house of pain hop and their famous song is jump yeah coincidence
0: no it's all the illuminati or something right it's all probably is but (laughs) yeah
1: census scholarship says that it's a coincidence so (laughs) (laughs)
0: that's awesome yeah Uh, all
1: my jokes just sort of
0: fall flat so i'm no, sorry about i'm that. no i get it i i i was i was trying to remember who um the house of pain were and i was like i just googled them i was like oh cool cool <laughs> i yeah i'm old josh like i'm an old man so you know i'm not hip with these you can't many be many that old people. can't be that old david <laughs> I'm 30 to three i'm um, 42 so you know thanks uh, for that okay <laughs> <laughs> well uh, so I wanted to, before, before jumping into uh, the discussion tonight, um, is there anything about The Excess, is there anything you learned writing Volume 2 that you, or was anything you learned writing Volume 1 that you put into Volume 2? Like, do you approach it differently?
1: Yeah. Um, that's a good question. Um, I think one of the things that I did was to be, to be, uh, much more intentional, uh, about choosing which topics, uh, I was gonna, I was gonna write on. What I mean by that is, you know, volume one, it, I feel like I got lucky with it, um, because I had done a whole series on the book of Daniel, right? I'd done, uh, a bunch of work on, did Moses write the Pentateuch? Um, I done a whole, uh, a whole video, maybe two. I can't remember. On did uh, you know the prophecy, Ezekiel's prophecy of Tyre, you know, so all the chapters that I wrote on, I can't remember what the fourth oh, was. Slavery, of course. I'd done a lot of work on slavery. So what I was going to do was just do those four chapters and put them into sort of a small, smallish book. You know, basically following my scripts, and um, and then I thought. I should, if I'm going to make this like a, a useful tool, I need to give background information. So that's where the first three chapters came from. So in a lot of ways, it was sort of like after the fact, how do I bring this together and make it make it fit? And again, I think it turned out well. Um, Megan helped a lot. Um, but but with, that meant with volume two, I could be much more intentional about how I was going to do this. And uh, of course... I learned that very surprisingly to me that people really really like that first chapter where I just sort of go through the narrative of the Old Testament, right tell the story oh, um, and people, so man, I was I was so surprised that that was such a, a big hit um I mean I'm happy but uh, yeah so I, so I was able to you know kind of take my time and go this was a lot more. This section was pretty meaty uh because it went through um you know leading up to king david and uh, the united monarchy and uh you know so going all the way down through solomon and his death um so it was it's it was a good chapter to you know to, there, was a, there was a lot in it i guess but uh yeah i think just being able to be a lot more intentional was really useful
0: Yeah. So, um, I received a, like a pre, um, print, um, version, um, to quickly read before this podcast from Megan, um, like a a few days ago. And I was like, oh, cool. Like the chapters, like, I'll you know, I'll, I'll read one chapter or two chapters and the introduction. Um, I started reading like chapter uh three um on canaanite um stuff and i was like okay this is I'm like this is this is going somewhere this is going somewhere and then i was like oh my gosh we're like 50 pages in and we're like like it's dense like it's it covers so much stuff and it's just so much information there but written in such a way that you can like grasp it and understand it and it's it's uh like like i said like i feel like i could have all the old testament um uh, classes i did in ministry college could just be condensed into this book Mm. but written in a way that people can understand it it's it's Mm. fantastic
1: i really Um, appreciate that and it's um it's nice to hear
0: it's nice to hear especially this is going to sound a little embarrassing but especially like i feel like i got a better understanding of the general story of the old testament from just reading your your um like I should know more about the Old Testament. I feel like because I read the I read your like introductions to these, the, like just an overview of the the Bible, and um and I was like that makes so much sense. Like why can't someone teach it like this? You're a brilliant teacher. I recommend people get the book. It's it's really good. I'm not just saying that.
1: Well, I really um, appreciate that. You should definitely not feel bad in any way, um, <laughs> because there's there's a lot there's a lot of moving parts. Uh, I think in the Hebrew Bible and. Um, so I, it, it it certainly wasn't like a straightforward, easy thing to to, to tease out the story. Um, of course, it's easier. This book was easier in that sense because it's you know going through first and second Samuel. It's just like sort of getting into um, mm. it's, it's 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 very much straight narrative. Whereas with the Pentateuch, it was you know going through all the as Oz says, the begat, begat, begat. You know, yeah. Um, But yeah i think being able to to just see the storyline and get that background really helps
0: yeah so let's jump into the actual chapter chapter 4 exodus what can we say and what we cannot say i was hoping that you could give the audience um pretend that some people in here don't really know much they're not scholars they're not they're not geniuses like us um they're just you know they're just regular people, normies, right? Just pretend they're normies, um, and explain. That was a joke, everyone. I just hope you know, uh, at least the me being a genius part. Um, just maybe explain uh, if you could explain the Exodus just quickly, like a like a elevator pitch, as you say.
1: Yeah. So
0: it'll be a little bit longer, I think, than an
1: elevator pitch. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, I a train ride pitch. Yeah, right. Um. So the the issue with the Exodus, for anybody that doesn't know what what that means, um, you know, there's a there's a very important story in uh, the Hebrew Bible, in the Book of Exodus, that talks about where Israel came from. It's one of the the two sort of formation stories, and so it talks about the Israelites having gone down, you know joseph and and jacob's family all going down uh into egypt joseph dies you know uh, and 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 the people start to multiply his descendants start to multiply and they're enslaved in egypt and so there's this you know very involved story about the birth of moses and um you know he he goes down and with yahweh's help through a series of 10 plagues he ultimately brings the people out of Egypt, and of course the Pharaoh pursues with his army, and uh, you know, the, the army is drowned in, in the, the Yam Suf, right? The, whatever that means, like the Reed Sea, the Final Sea, whatever we're going to say about it. Um, and so the Israelites, you know, sort of to continue on the story, they wander around in the wilderness for 40 years, uh, and then finally they come into the land of Canaan, and under Joshua, they conquer. So that's sort of like the, the 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 long version of the story. So the difficulty, of course, is, you know, is it historically reliable? Is the story that the biblical text is, is presenting, is it historically reliable? And to what degree is it historically reliable? Um, now, you know, back when... Uh, biblical archaeology, Palestinian archaeology, was, like, sort of growing. It was really up until uh, well into the 20th century. You know, the basic idea, even from people like Albright, um, was that, yeah, it's it's you know, basically historically reliable. The problem is that um, the more excavation is done, uh specifically in many of these cities that are supposed to have been uh either um, you know and inca- there's supposed to be great encampments at these cities or the israelites are supposed to have stayed there for some time or uh you know they were supposed to have destroyed them we don't it doesn't line up with what the the the, the bible says right the timeline of the biblical text um so this is part of the problem with the Exodus. First of all, and I think really the the big debate is if it happened. When did it happen, and what did it look like? Now, if you're, you know, a, more of a fundamentalist evangelical, you're probably going to hold to like a traditionalist view, which is that um, you know if you read through First Kings six, uh, and you read through Judges eleven. There are these time frames that are given: four hundred eighty years before this particular year of Solomon's reign, and Jephthah talks about three hundred years before him. And so there's this idea that in the middle of the fifteenth century, so right around fourteen fifty BCE, that's when the Exodus was supposed to have happened. Um, and you know, Exodus twelve thirty seven talks about six hundred thousand fighting men. Um, which doesn't include women and children. So when you you factor in women and children, essentially looking at two to three million people leaving the Delta, right, leaving Egypt. Well, you know, that was all fine and good until archaeology caught up with it, right? And it became clear, wait a minute. First of all, that, that number doesn't work at all. Um, you know estimates are that only three million people were in all of egypt at the time um and only several hundred several hundred thousand in the uh, in the delta region so you know that number just doesn't work you can't have all of egypt leaving egypt right uh that 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 doesn't work yeah,
0: um I, I, I also well isn't there an issue with like at the time that some people think that the Exodus happened, they would have been leaving Egypt to Egypt. Like, wasn't that the section they went to?
1: Yeah. So, uh, if if you think about, you know, the the east side of the Mediterranean, uh, down underneath of it, you've got Egypt, and then if you go just to the the southeast of the Mediterranean Sea, that's where you have Israel or Canaan at the time. And Canaan was under the control of, uh, and like look, I'm not an Egyptologist, I'm not an Egyptian specialist. I'm just presenting uh, what it is that scholars
0: say about this. So yeah. um, if we have any Egyptologist in the chat, make sure you roast uh, Dr. Josh in the comments. Um,
1: yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, <laughs> certainly, certainly not my field. Uh, that's what made I think writing this chapter fun/ terrifying. Uh, is uh, that I'm I'm <clears throat> I'm really having to dig down into, right? What is it that scholars say about this, and what is the rationale behind it? So, um, the the land of Canaan is very very close, right, to the land of Egypt, and uh, down until I think down into the 12th century, uh, Egypt had a pretty firm hold. Uh, on Canaan. It was broken up into two or three provinces and governed, right? Probably a lot by, like, military, um, military personnel, uh, but but people that sort of governed over there. And, of course, we know a lot of this from a group of text cuneiform tablets that are written in Akkadian that were found in Egypt at a site called Hotel El Amarna uh, called the Amarna Tablets, very uh, creatively. Um and there's a lot of correspondence letters between the sort of local rulers that were in Canaan that were subjects of the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh himself. and they're often asking for help, you know, uh, talking about conspiracies. You know, the other ruler is conspiring against them against the Pharaoh. and so <clears throat> but but we know that Egypt is under the control, uh, of uh, sorry Canaan is under the control of Egypt and so yes the idea that in the 15th century um, you know people leave Egypt to go to Canaan <clears throat> uh, you know it's they're, they're leaving Egypt to go to another land controlled by Egypt it just doesn't work right which is and, and there are other factors that we don't have to go into here because it might be a little too detailed, but <clears throat> there's a reason that if if people think that there's any historical validity behind the story, and again, like any any, any small amount of historical validity, it happened, they would argue, during the 13th century um, because there are, some, there are some things that happened, like uh, you know, the building of Pyramacy and... Um, like these are, these are cities, uh, that the biblical text talks about that were, uh, supposed to be built before the Exodus took place. Well, they, you know, they were built, what, in the, in the 13th century? Um, so, I think around 1270, I can't remember, but at any rate, um, not, it it, it doesn't work in the 15th century. Um, But what that means, and I'll stop talking, but what that means is that if you're going to, the reason that people have changed from a a traditional date in the 15th century um, to this 13th century position is because of archaeology, right? Archaeology has said the 15th century doesn't work. So... That in and of itself requires that people come up with explanations for why First uh, Kings 6.1 says four hundred eighty years before Solomon, which would have been you know that year would have been like nine seventy. So you go back four hundred eighty years from nine seventy or fourteen fifty, right? Well, why is it that that doesn't work? Because it up until archaeology sort of exposed that it, it worked, right? Um, and so then you have to kind of come up with explanations. Well, maybe 480 years. It's supposed to be 12 generations of 40 years, but maybe maybe a generation is only like 25 years. And so you know, then we can get you know th- that number down. And so then it matches up. Like, um, you know. Th- with with the, that number 600,000 fighting men in Exodus 12, 37, maybe it doesn't, maybe LF there, the word for thousand doesn't really mean thousand, right? Maybe it means like a military unit or, you know, like smaller. And so that gets the number way down. So it makes it more feasible. Uh, but mm-hmm. the only reason that you make that argument is because archeology span tells you that there couldn't have been that many people in Egypt, right? So it's, it's very much in response, um, which is why, this will be the last thing I say, but this is why more fundamentalist uh, advocates that that talk about the Exodus do so, saying, "Whoa, whoa! You're really having to do some mental gymnastics with the with the text here, because look, it says very clearly 480 years here, and it says very clearly 300 years there, right? How do you like, how do you get around this? Uh, well, you have to do these sort of mental gymnastics," um, is, is is what the argument is. So. That's the that's the issue, or the issues.
0: Um, yeah, it's um. Sorry, Heathen Queen just messaged me complaining about not being a mod, um, <laughs> and it just came up and it lost my chain of thought. Thank you, Heathen Queen. <laughs> You're not a mod because you didn't ask in the on the Twitter thread, okay? <laughs> and also, just to shout out to some people who who um Oz is saying that he's disappointed that no one's drinking. We are drinking. You obviously missed the start of the show. Um this is deep drinks. And everyone let me know what you're drinking in the comments because uh, I'd like to know what what you're drinking on a on a Friday night if you're in the US. Um so what I what I like about um volume 1 volume 1 was interesting for for me right because you, you tackled genesis and um, and noah and his magical zoo boat um and, and things like that right <laughs> so uh, and you know it's kind of like reading it's kind of like hearing someone talk about like lord of the rings um you know like it's obviously a boat obviously didn't, you know like there's things that are obviously not true but you you handled it respectfully and like but it's like it's like obviously these were the uh, polemic you you mentioned most likely mm-hmm. in, in to mesopotamian civilization and that was cool and everything. But what I found interesting about the Exodus story is there's a part of my brain that thinks maybe there is some validity to that. Like what parts of it are actually true? So I wanted to just ask, what can we say about the Exodus? And then yeah. we what, what we can't say. Just yeah.
1: So like there are, there are things that I think are important to recognize. And this is where... I, I really think it's important for us as skeptics, as atheists, agnostics, whatever, um, that we're fair with the data. So, you know, there are, the first part of the chapter sort of goes through what are the earliest references to an Exodus event, right, or events. And there are some early poetic passages Uh, In the Pentateuch, poetic passages in the Pentateuch, Um, specifically Exodus fifteen and parts of Numbers, Numbers twenty three and twenty four, that reference an Exodus event, and so you also see it in the prophets. And I look at the the prophets Hosea and Amos, uh, who are eighth century prophets, and say, "What is it that what is it um, that they're describing?" but there doesn't seem to be like uniformity in what they're describing. In other words, it's not like Exodus 15 hits all the points, right? Like it talks about slavery in Egypt and they're making this wilderness wandering and all this stuff. It's it's basically talking about Yahweh as a divine warrior. Um, And when you look at places like numbers, or then you go to the prophets, you get different aspects of the Exodus story and what it, you know, even though we we don't think, or it doesn't seem like scholars would, would think that, uh, who specialize in this, that uh, the entire story that we see in the canonical version, like the final version uh, in the book of Exodus, uh, it doesn't seem like these early references hit all of those points. Um, but there is an Exodus tradition, right? There's something back there. So then, the question is, where do these things date to? Um, now, these things are uh, still debated uh, by the specialists that look at like linguistic features and you know other other aspects that are probably too boring for this podcast. But um, it seems like the Exodus this section of Exodus, Exodus fifteen, you know, if if we're generous, may go back to like the eleventh century, right? I mean, maybe not that far, but maybe. Um, I sort of grant it in the book, right? Maybe it goes back to the 11th century. Uh, then it seems like the oracles of Balaam go back to the 9th century, maybe 8th or 9th century, and then certainly the, the two prophets, even though there's debate, maybe it's later redactions. But again, granting it, it seems like it seems like early on, even though it was like a primarily a dark age, uh, in, in our understanding of Israelite formation, it seemed like there was an exodus tradition. Something was there. Um, and I think that's important to recognize, that it doesn't seem like it's just this 5th century BCE development, like somebody just made it up out of whole cloth. Interesting. So I think that's important, yeah.
0: So um, I know you hate doing this, So you've but uh, you like to give consensus... Uh, opinions, but I want to know Dr. Josh's opinion. What do you reckon? Is the uh, the Sorry. um that's right. Um, what Sorry. what do you what do you think? Where do you think it came from, or what? Do you do you have any inkling?
1: Yeah, I mean, I again, I'm not a specialist, and I think to be able to to say anything with it, like you would want to talk to somebody like. William Deaver, Ronald Hendel, um, you know somebody that specializes in this. I've read them, so uh, you know I, I feel sort of comfortable saying this personally. What seems to make sense to me, and again, like just take this with a grain of salt because I'm not, uh, I'm not a specialist. Fun <laughs> fact: um, it seems reasonable to me that there may have been uh in the 12th century maybe i don't know um after you know the power that egypt had over canaan had waned it may have been during that you know sort of weak period that some slaves did escape right because we know that they did i talk about it in the, in the chapter we have documentation that's it's just two uh slaves right. that escaped but you know it it seems like during the second millennium, slaves escaping was a thing, right? And so I don't see any problem thinking that some Canaanite slaves that had been taken by the Egyptians and you know raiding into Canaan um, escaped and you know maybe felt like it was a miraculous thing that they did. And when they came into Canaan, right? So, I mean, we could be talking about ten people, right? Who knows? Um, but when they came into Canaan, there was this group of people that had set up in the highlands, um, calling themselves Israel. I mean, we know that. I think we're scholars seem pretty reasonably sure. Again, I don't. I don't know Egyptian, so I don't want to speak to that. Uh, just because, I like, the Merneptah Stele is one of the, the, the places that we see Israel mentioned. It's the place that we see Israel mentioned. Um, but it seems like scholars agree that in 1207 or thereabouts, uh, there is a group called Israel that is significant enough to draw the attention of the pharaoh, Pharaoh Merneptah. Um So, like, you've got this group up in the highlands that's forming, uh, or has formed, or is continuing to form. And if you think about the people in Canaan, they would have felt enslaved, right, because they're under the thumb of their Egyptian overlords. Um, So that could have felt like a type of slavery. Uh, And coupled with you know, maybe a small group of people coming up out of Egypt uh, and joining in the highlands and talking about the miraculous escape. It, I I see no problem with that developing into over generations, sort of this this mythological um, story of their beginning, right, of their formation. Uh, like, so I I guess you know one of the quotes that I have is. Uh, comes from this 2017 uh edited volume. I can't remember Flesher is one of the uh the right Elliot I think is another but um you know basically they say were there slaves that escaped from Egypt in the second millennium yes uh you know did did the Egyptians take captives and enslave them yes from Canaan you know uh in other words it goes through all of these aspects of the of the Exodus story, it says, "Did these things happen?" Yes. The problem is they don't happen all at once, right? They're they're, they're spread out through the second millennium, and so it's possible uh, that part of this is like a telescoping uh, of all of these events that have you know sort of been brought down. Um, and another thing, David Elan uh, has an article uh, where he talks about our presentation. That where he talks about how Egyptian officials that were left after Egyptian power sort of waned uh, in Canaan, those that were left in Canaan married, and you know that that could have been part of the early formation. So I think it's messy. That would be, I I would bet if I had to bet I would bet that it's a messy development. You have Canaanites that are in the land that are leaving the cities that are pastoralists that are settling down. Uh, in the Highlands, maybe just, you know, like disenfranchised, but they're, in other words, they're looking for this egalitarian, um, you know, structure, and and all of this sort of coalesces and develops into early Israelite formation um, in the Highlands. But very happy to be proven wrong by that, right? Very happy. All I would say in the book is that, in the same way that I can't crack open the royal inscriptions of Sennacherib and write my history. Um, and that's a contemporaneous text. Uh, or I can't crack open, you know, later writings about Naram sin uh, from the first millennium and write a history about the Old Akkadian period. It's unwise, I think to put it mildly, <clears throat> to um, crack open the book of Exodus and write your history, you know, just sort of slavishly writing it.
0: I don't think it, it's not a good thing to do,
1: historically speaking.
0: You you did mention that you are willing to be corrected. And I'm sorry, we 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 have uh, Dr. Kip um, Davis <laughs> correcting you here. Um, how do you account for the chariot wheels Ron Wyatt discovered <sighs> while scuba diving in the Red Sea? Come
1: on. Trying to keep oh, that sorry. on a down low, keep it on uh-huh. a down low. <laughs> oh, yeah,
0: <Okay>. I, <laughs> I remember that.
1: I remember seeing that documentary. It was almost as good as the documentary that I think Bryant Wood put out um, about Jericho. And it like this really cool uh, computer generated like demonstration of how the walls fell out, the mud brick walls, <laughs> and created a ramp for the Israelites to run up. You know, it was like, whoa, that's so cool, you know.
0: I, I have I, I actually have a question. Did you ever see I don't know anyone who's seen this, but it was a favorite of mine, this bad boy. Did you ever watch oh, the search no. for Sunai? No, I didn't. Oh, it's like it's like it's classic Christian kind of documentary style. It's actually pretty interesting. They go to uh they you know they try and follow the Bible literally and they go to um, they cross the Red Sea or or wherever and they end up in Saudi Arabia, they forge letters to the prince uh, from the prince or whatever to get in there. And then they Jeez. find like an altar with calves painted on it. And they find these big pillars and they find this top of the mountain and they crack open, um, this black rock that inside is granite. And they're like, that's where God, you know, it's still to it, you know? So, um, yeah. And he Yahweh pops out of it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, you found so, me. Yeah. Um, Michael Jones, um, is he, he believes in the volcano God. Um, no, he gets uh, he gets so triggered when anyone calls the guy a volcano god." Uh, talking about Michael Jones, have you seen his um, Exodus Rediscovered series? I have not. No, it's um, I was going to play a clip of it here, but I feel like it's, it wouldn't fit because the arguments build one another, and you haven't really seen it. So, um, but it's it's an interesting watch. Um, coming like for me, I, I know hardly anything about this topic, so. Um, I'm kind of just sitting and nodding and smiling like I do in this conversation where i'm I'm trying to follow along and i and I, and I get most of what you're putting down. Um, I think one but... of the problems that we need to
1: sort of talk about um, is the idea of verisimilitude. So I guess the the example that I always give because I feel like it's really understandable um, is that, you know, I was watching the original Spider-Man movie um, recently. I'm only about 15 minutes into it, but um, you know, one of the things about Spider-Man, right, is it takes place, if I'm remembering correctly, in New York City. Yeah. Right, or like the Avengers movies. Um, now, if you were to, um, or Ghostbusters, right? Like Ghostbusters, also in, in New York City. You know, you could probably go to different places that you see in the movie, right? And be like, this this is where Venkman, you know, fired the, you know, the, the shit, the, what's that thing called that they shoot? The, um, okay, anyway, it doesn't matter.
0: I'm not sure, I,
1: sorry. I can't believe, I can't remember what that's called. Somebody put it in the chat, but, um... That doesn't mean that Ghostbusters happened, right? The reason that that background setting is there is to give it verisimilitude. It's to give it like the the, the feel of authenticity, right? And one of the things that I think we have to come to grips with is that so often um, in arguments that are you know people that argue for the general historicity, uh, of something like the Exodus or the conquest, um, is that they do things like if you read James Hoffmeyer, for example, brilliant Egyptologist, um, but if you read what he says in his books and you know, there's a there's a recent publication, he's got a chapter and it's essentially like if if the stage up on which the scenes are set fits then that adds what's the word it it adds um validity yeah he uses he uses a word and i can't remember what it is but it's essentially yeah it, it enhances that's what it is enhances it proton pack i think it's called a proton pack anyway um i don't know why that came back to me just then so um we have to be careful with that because Again, it's predicated on the idea that the biblical texts are generally should be considered reliable, right? And that's a problem, right? That's a problem, and not not just for me, right? But for scholarship in general. Um, Because certainly when you're talking about events from like the book of Kings or even, even with Samuel, um, it's a lot easier to get at uh, the general historical reliability of the events. There's a whole shit ton of propaganda that goes into it. Everything's twisted about David, but you know, it's arguably uh, presenting actual to a degree history. The problem is you can't then extend that to all of the biblical texts. You just can't. Um, and so I think starting with this premise that, well, the Exodus is probably generally historically reliable unless we can show that it's not, I think is a bad position to start with. Mm-hmm. Um, for a number of reasons. Uh, one of which it's written hundreds of years later. Right. And, uh but at, hundreds at any, of right? years
0: hundreds of years after the supposed events that's correct okay for, as related to the bible what the bible says when it happened yeah, right
1: that's right okay. so what what i think is important to recognize in this is that it's not enough to say it fits right because again um the scene that is set in the biblical texts works in many more places than just the fifteenth or the thirteenth century, right? Generally speaking, um, things develop much more slowly during those periods. Um, what? But this this sort of brings me to maybe the second half of the Exodus narrative or like the completion of the Exodus narrative, which is the conquest account under Joshua. And um, the reason that I think the conquest is so important to the discussion about the Exodus is because whenever you date the Exodus to, if you're you're taking like a maximalist position, particularly if you're taking a maximalist position that is, you know, like the biblical texts are generally historically reliable, um, then you have to contend with whenever they left Egypt, like 40 years later, you need to start seeing conquest, like destruction layers in the Negev, in the Transjordan, in Cisjordan, right? Jericho, Ai, Lachish, Hazor, right? You need to see in the archeological record this you know, evidence of this right it's it, it has and it has to fit in all of them unfortunately uh, I think um certainly the majority of them uh, if you're going to hold to this position of of you know the, the biblical texts are generally historically reliable and this is what I talk about in the conquest chapter unfortunately for that position almost none of it fits and even the places that do fit, only fit in the sense that it's possible that this is an israelite destruction um certainly not definitively that it was um so and david you can stop me if i'm just rambling on too much but no no
0: no no go go ahead i'm just um i'm just trying to uh, it's not going to work there was a sure. quote that i was going to put up on the screen from your book but this is this is great because I was, I was well I'll I'll just I'll just read your quote because it's just going to flow into what you're hopefully going to um talk about but you mentioned a quote from uh, Diva, De- Deva Deva mm-hmm. Diva. I'm not sure Diva. um Deva um you said one of the um of the 30 sites um the bible says were taken by the israelites um actual destructions have been found in only two or three and these are not necessary israelite um okay. sites like Tehban, uh, Hezbron, mm-hmm. Jericho, and AI were not even occupied in the late 13th century BCE. Uh, when yeah. we now know that any excess conquest must have been dated. So, like, you hear that, and this is the...
1: So Eric Klein, who, again, is... Uh, I'm really excited about this. He's one of the peer reviewers of these chapters in particular, because um, this is sort of his thing. Uh, he wrote a book in 2009, I think. I always mess up the year. Uh, it's called Eden to Exile, I think, from Eden to Exile. And it deals with some of these, several of these problematic um, stories. And one of them is the Exodus and the Conquest. Uh, actually, I think it's just the Conquest, I can't remember. But he, he deals with the Conquest. And his methodology is, uh, is the methodology that I used in this chapter, primarily. Because what he did is he said, okay, we go through the biblical text and we see these cities, I think there are eight of them, are said to have been either totally destroyed or like seriously brought low. And so from an archeological perspective, we've excavated at these cities, um, these sites, we should be able to see the destruction layer, right? Um, do we see it? So the two questions that I ask, utilizing that methodology, and I sort of expand a little bit into Transjordan and into the Negev, looking at cities there. Um, but the two questions that we ask in the chapter are, if if there's a city that was supposed to have been destroyed by the Israelites, one, were there people there at the time, was there a city there to be destroyed? Because you need that. <laughs> and then, two, is there evidence of destruction at that time? And that's all we're looking at. Were there people there? Is there evidence of destruction? And again, I won't bore the audience with the you know the the details. Um, although I think if you're going to argue this topic, it's it's a really useful chapter because it's designed to arm you with the data. Um, let's take the three Transjordan sites, Arad in the Negev, so not really Jordan, but Arad in the Negev, and then Heshbon and Dibon uh, in, in Transjordan. Each are supposed to have been destroyed. None of them are occupied during the Late Bronze Age.
0: Uh Uh-oh. So, so, like, this is a a serious issue. Do you have time to jump into some Q&A, Josh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So what we might do then, um, because we're coming up to an hour now, and maybe we can do, like, a half an hour of Q&A. So if anyone has any questions for Dr. Josh, um, throw them in now. Um, And that would be really awesome to to do. We did have some – I was trying to answer the questions – Uh, myself, Dr. Josh, and uh, I'm not very good at history and stuff. So, Michael Granado asked before, uh, one of the common apologetic claims is that why would they make up a story where they were slaves? Uh, And then, to lend credence to the idea that it is historically factual, uh, if they were not there, why are they connected to Egypt?
1: Uh, Well, um so these types of apologetic arguments um I don't understand cultural interaction, particularly during uh, you know, times in the ancient world. If you think about where Egypt is in relation to Canaan, you know, it's but a stone's throw. Um, so, you know, <laughs> the, the interaction, again, Canaan during the late Bronze Age has, is divided up in provinces. Under Egyptian control, right? There's always fighting for Canaan um, and that, that portion of the Levant between the Hittites and the Egyptians. Again, I'm it's a it's a, a specialization, but, um, you know, so the idea that there's cultural interaction. I mean, God, look at look at the Amarna period. The Amarna period, just so that everybody knows, and I I write about this in book one, um. In the 14th century, when these letters date to, these tablets date to, there is international diplomacy, like there's international relationships between these great pow- these great powers, um, and so like Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Hittites and Mitanni and the Babylonians, and they're all writing to each other as brothers. Right there's a uh, um, there's a a a type of um, style. It's like an eclectic style that's called um, it's it's founded in Ugarit, which is sort of central to a lot of these countries, and um, it's like the style is sort of a mix of a bunch of different a bunch of these countries sort of. uh, you know, it's a little bit of Egyptian style, a little Assyrian style. And, I mean, like, the interaction between these uh, places, it's unsuperable. It would be... Uh, it's just, it's weird that that's even a question, um, that there's this type of interaction. Of course there's this type of interaction. Uh, I, I just, I find that to be a... It's just an odd, odd thing to... Not obviously for Michael to bring up, but for as an apologetic argument, like why would there be Egyptian things in it? And of course, um, Friedman's written a book, 2017, I think, where he's talking about the connections between um, Egypt and the Exodus story. Uh, I, it's it's what it's what I would expect. I, I, it doesn't surprise me. I guess is what I'm saying.
0: Michael has a really another really good question. Just dropping bombs today. Was Moses no. real?
2: No. <laughs> no. Okay.
0: So, Hidden Queen answered that. Let me one. help
2: y'all with that. No. And
0: anyway. and for those listening, um, Hidden Queen has joined us for the Q and A, um, and she's been day drinking because <laughs> of life. So um, that's true, she's...
2: but also like the answer to this question is no. Okay. Yeah, so. so that's...
0: Josh, do you have a do you have a different opinion or uh no, you, do you agree? Um
1: exactly. Yeah.
0: I agree. And I mean, like <laughs> see this is this is what's
1: fun about these questions. Like because what I think the question is asking, obviously I don't think Michael's asking it this way, but when this question is asked by apologists, to me it's the equivalent of asking it's even worse, but but it's roughly equivalent to, did Gilgamesh exist? Because I would say, yeah, there was a king named Gilgamesh. We have pretty good evidence for that, I think. Um, and he ruled the city of Uruk, just like in the epic, right? Um, but if somebody were asking the question, is Gilgamesh real? And did he run through a tunnel racing the sun to get to the end of the earth. And did he meet the flood survivor? Like, and did he, uh, you know, like swim down, uh, to get the, the, the plant of life and then lose it to a snake, uh, while he was bathing on his way back to work. No, like what? No, that guy's not What are you talking about? That's a story. Right. And so like, was there a guy named Moses? I mean, Maybe, and, or maybe the story's based on somebody whose name wasn't Moses. I mean, who the fuck knows, right? Like th- this-
2: Likely an amalgamation like, of people that yeah. you just like recreated a narrative out of, it's much like King David, don't tell
1: anyone. But it's, it's, it's like thinking about, <laughs> th- thinking about like did Abraham, like was there a guy named Abraham or Isaac or Jacob? I mean, I, I mean, Maybe, but I mean, if you're asking, if they're asking the question, did Abraham take Isaac (laughs) up the mountain to sagar No, right?
0: No, um, yeah, it was obviously Ishmael, um, as it says in (laughs) Islam, obviously, obviously, that's corrected, it's been corrected. Um, you mentioned, uh, I've got a question, uh, you mentioned in the book, um. uh, This illumination potentially threatens to jeopardize your faith. If it does, um, I would like to suggest that you don't need to leave your religious tradition on these grounds alone. Uh, You also mentioned uh, how you would be justified in doing so, but you don't have to. I was wondering if you could talk about how someone can remain a believer um, and come to terms with the fact that a lot of what we read about in the Old Testament isn't historical. Of course,
1: I mean, the easy answer is to talk to Megan, right? Um, because Megan's a Christian, um, but the way I'm, that I'm sh-
2: talking to Megan, so please don't.
1: <laughs> Unless I'm you want to catch those hands, you know? Exactly right. <laughs> um, but the reality here is that the way that we've often, particularly in the States, been raised Um, To think about the Bible is that it's inspired and inerrant, right? And when you start with that, then it becomes, from this fundamentalist sort of position, this interpretive framework, it becomes impossible for something to be wrong, right? There, there, There can't be a single contradiction. You hear it all the time. Not a single contradiction. Why is that? Like, why can't there be one? Why is it that nobody blinks uh, when they think about, you know, reading through, um, you know, uh, I don't know, Sargon's Eighth Campaign? Like, nobody, when they think about, you know, or if they're reading through, like, Ethan Queen just got uh, Grayson's book on the Chronicles, Babylonian Chronicles, like... People people don't read that and say, oh, contradiction here, throw it all out. No, people don't do that, right? Because they don't consider royal inscriptions, uh, you know, neo-Babylonian royal inscriptions to be inspired and inerrant. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So um, because of that, there's not this pressure on the text to be perfect. There's the rake and shovel method can be applied, right? rake in the good stuff, shovel out the bad. You know, in, in this case, rake in the details that we think from a historical standpoint work, shovel out the ones that don't. Um, for example, like, does the does the Neo-Assyrian king run ahead of his army and and chop his way through the mountains because his army was slowing him down and defeat the enemy single-handedly, de- defeat Urartu single-handedly? No. Uh, Yes right how do you know yeah how do we
0: know yeah always ask have
1: faith how Josh, do you we know? have faith <laughs> that's right but but that doesn't mean that we don't think that the neo-Assyrian king fought Urartu right we do think that um so how do we do that like how do we how do we say that there was a battle here but that the story's not perfect? I mean, called propaganda. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> right. Propaganda, if you will,
2: in the U.S. <laughs> event.
1: Like, like we recognize it, and and so I think that if you can step away from the idea that the Bible has to be perfect, the Bible has to be um, taken for the most part literally, uh, that it has to be understood as uh inerrant in its content its presentation life gets a lot easier and a lot nicer because you don't have to say things like but it was the good kind of slavery yeah right um you don't have to say that anymore because you can say "Mm, product of its time yeah product of its time the conversation
0: becomes a whole lot more interesting. I've even noticed this with, uh, Jordan Peterson seems to do this. And like, when you ask him like a question, like did Jesus die on the cross? He's like, it'll take me two days to answer that question. And you're like, I thought it was a yes or no, but, um, (laughs) anyway, um, you know, so like, uh, you know, he, he, and he's got a lot of people who follow his style of, um, of interpreting holy texts and, and the Bible. And I think that's becoming more popular, um, in non-fundamentalist circles. Um, I think so. I'll tell, I'll say two things uh, if it's okay. Yeah.
1: W- one is I open up the Exodus chapter with a story about my father. And, you know, without giving too much away, I guess, not that that's like a critical part, but I'll do um, it. <laughs> 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 my dad is six, four and back in his prime, he was probably like 280, right? Like he's a big guy. His hands are like, baseball gloves um and he was a carpenter uh worked in construction and when when things were like usually it was when something had gone wrong uh but he knew that the 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 solution was right around the corner he would burst out into song And he'd sing, oh, my Lord knows the way through the wilderness. All I got to do is follow, right? And the reason that that was so moving to him had nothing to do with the historicity of the Exodus or the wanderings, right? It was, if you had had asked him, hey, did the Exodus happen? Yeah, yeah, definitely. But I mean, like, he didn't know anything about it, right? Mm. And it didn't matter because Mm. it's the story that matters, it's it's what the tradition means that matters. It's the fact that what he took from this was that no matter what happens, God is going to take care of me. he's gonna work it out. all I got to do is trust him through it and you know that that's why these stories are so powerful and that's why they're so meaningful. so the second thing that I'll say, in, in tying into that is, if you've ever been in uh, a more laid back or a non fundamentalist um, Sunday school class, you've you've probably had the experience of someone that the, the teacher reading from a passage and then looking out to the group and saying, "Now, what does that passage mean to you? What does that say to you?" And everybody Not comes that to much to, say, to be honest, <laughs> <But> like. <laughs> You know, it was something like the Psalms, you know, so you could read through a Psalm and people, it's very easy because poetic and people are like, yeah, you know, that makes me feel like this, that makes me feel like that. Um, And if you talk to people that are in like uh, my, the seminary that I went through, they would say, oh, that's horrible. Horrible, right? Because who cares what it means to you? All we care about is the historical, grammatical context, right? What is mm-hmm. it that it meant then? Well... There are a lot of things in life that we don't give a fuck about what the author meant, right? Very few times do you go up to a painting and say, now I wonder what the author meant by this. Because what it says to me, how it speaks to me doesn't matter, right? It's, it's what the author meant. But No. People put art in their houses because it speaks to them, right? It has meaning to them. In other words, yeah. it's how they respond to it. And this type of reader response interpretation, this reader response theory, I wish that all religions would start operating based on a reader response theory. Mm. Because what reader response does is it keeps your own ethical system intact. It keeps your morality intact. The one that we've like morally progressed to, it keeps it sound. In other words, I don't read through Exodus 21 and see about my slave or Leviticus 25 and see about my slave and go, ooh, my ethical system says I shouldn't have a slave. But, you know, uh, this passage sort of says that maybe it's okay. That doesn't happen. You filter that shit out because what is that passage saying? What is it that 1 Samuel 15 with the Amalekites is saying? Well, it's saying that, you know, we've got to make sure that we do what God says. Right, and what is God saying? Well, God is saying to me, "Be a good person." Right, so I should really care for the poor because that's what it says in the Gospels. Right, so I, I have to do that, or God's going to be upset with me. Right? Is that perfect? No, but it's a whole fuck ton better. Right. <laughs> it it makes yeah. it so that you don't say things like Samson was actually a really good guy for killing all those people.
0: Mm-hmm. So, anyway. That was yeah that, that's a, that's a really i love the analogy you have there of the painting because the painting um you know if if you have a painting of a beautiful sunset and mountains and stuff and someone came up to you and said was there really a sun there when he was painting or they were painting oh, right. that image like how do you know that this was do you have hey, like the date and did time
2: the sun really stands still in the sky
0: Ooh, <laughs> that's a good question
2: i have questions i need answers from the good doctor
0: um if
1: according to the narrative yes um and <laughs> i i have a feeling that that is coming from inspiring philosophy's recent video what
2: inspiring philodendrons not me <laughs> couldn't be <made>. um
1: there's <laughs> it's important to be able sorry I, you, I i'll just talk about that very very briefly I, it's important to be able to distinguish between I mentioned earlier Exodus 15, right? The Song of the Sea, that early poem that's older than, sorry, that's older than the surrounding narrative of the Exodus. And it's something that was brought into and sort of inserted into the story of the Exodus, which is why when you read it, you don't see, like if you really are careful with it, it doesn't actually really tie in completely to what's going on in the narrative, but it fits enough, right? Um, so you have to be able to. This is what this is what scholars are doing when they're talking about the, like, what was the function? What was this text doing? Right? What was it its and What was? The, what is it that 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 it originally did? This this fragment, this section. Um. So when you look at Joshua ten and you're you're you know thinking about this um, sort of poetic section that's in the middle of the chapter, at the end of the chapter, I can't remember where it's at. It's like two or three verses, but they talk about the sun standing still. Um, it's it's arguably an omen, right, or akin to, or functioning somehow uh, as maybe a. I like I haven't dug down deep into it ever, but like it's it it has uh, connections to omina. But that doesn't mean that when it's brought into the surrounding story, that it continues to function as an omen. And that's an important distinction. We have to be very careful about this because, um, when Eminem brings in. Uh, uh, Joan Jett's I Love Rock and Roll into uh, Remind Me, his song. We can look at the sections of Joan Jett's song and talk about what they meant in their original context. But once they come into Eminem's song, there's a new meaning that's forged. And you can't Mm -hmm. just bring in... Joan Jett talking about like this boy by the jukebox, right? That's not, that's gone, right? It's forged new meaning. This is what intertextuality does. So we've got to be careful with this stuff when we say, well, it's an omen, so it doesn't mean that the sun stood still. Eh. The narrative is saying that it stood still.
0: That's the point. Um, So, yeah. Uh, just so everyone, uh, if everyone's in, coming late, we're just at the Q&A section, but I did want to just promote... The book, Atheist Handbook to the Old Testament, Volume 1. Volume 2 has just come out, and that's what we're talking about today. Another one of Dr. Josh's books. Where's my copy? There, TBH. To the Old Testament, or hmm? Slavery. Um, Where is it? And uh, if you like content like this, make sure you subscribe. Um, we've just recently moved Deep Drinks to its own channel, so that's why we've got low subscriber numbers. So if you like this content subscribe, I'd really appreciate it. We just got over 100, and I was able to snag that Deep Drinks um url youtube.com slash deep drinks so really appreciate it guys and thanks for subscribing um i do want to um wrap up in about 15 20 minutes but i have a really great question from michael granado that i again third question he's killing it today um that i need an answer for because the only thing my friends at work know about the exodus is what they hear from joe rogan What do you think of Moses was on Mushroom's idea floated around by historians who appear on Joe Rogan?
2: Never trust anything that comes out of Joe Rogan's mouth. (laughs) That fucking crusty infected toenail. (laughs) Never ever (laughs) trust that bitch. Am I lying? (laughs) No.
1: (laughs) Like
0: there's nothing else to say. Right. That's, oh. that's a period. Bitch. <laughs> well, By it's not him. It's period. the it's the guests. I, I I recently had a uh, yeah. had if someone have, actually. If you are purchased... Joe
2: Rogan and you have somebody on your show, they are going to agree with you.
0: But Kick that so, so the curve. let's even cut out Joe Rogan. Right. I I recently got given um, this book from a friend. Um, I haven't actually received it yet, but he sent me a photo, and it's literally. It's some historians who are talking about the possibility i don't i don't have references to it but i'll put links in the description after the fact talking about the possibility of psychedelics experience you know happening around the middle east and that's maybe where the yeah. ideas came I from. i
2: had a chat with someone about how the the magi um could have potentially been like there are certain texts that are preserved that make it sound like they had a psychedelic experience as like that was their experience, as opposed to them sort of like seeing a star and like physically following it. Yeah, and I'm not going to say that like either one is correct, but there are certainly texts that are like, huh?
0: Yeah, <laughs> Revelations is even a bit <laughs> apocalyptic, you know?
2: My favorite <laughs> like... <book> ever.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Josh, do you have any thoughts on this from from a big brain um, scholarly perspective? Yeah,
2: big brain.
1: <laughs> um, so I. Yeah, I'm definitely the expert on drugs. Um... <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah.
0: Sorry. I, I, I'm not. Oh, um,
2: y'all, my wife, Megan, uh, the question
0: is, the question is Heathen Queen very much. Oh, no, so. no.
2: It's not me. Not that much. But y'all should go look at Megan's photo on the Twitter. because She posted a picture of her hair. Uh, so I'm just promoting my wife personally. Sorry, Josh, you're out. Um, okay. Yeah, sorry. But y'all should check it out. Anyway,
1: that's all. Um, Yeah, I agree. Um, I am behind this. I support this. Uh, Josh is on the floor, to be honest. I said Um, what I said. (laughs) um, Sorry. (laughs) So there is an entire section in uh, this multi-volume work that a seriologist used called the it's rla it's the Real lexicon der seriologie it's like it's like our encyclopedia sort of um it's like the uh anchor bible dictionary if you're familiar with that six volume anyway but for a seriology and there's a section called flora and fauna um i have not read it Because again, it's like a subspecialty. Uh, Mm -hmm. people, People dedicate their lives. One of the things that is true, though, is that it's difficult. There are different layers that you have to go through to get at what exactly is this plant, right? So like when people try to classify a particular tree that's talked about in a text, it's hard to do because like you might translate it as like an oak or something. But what does it mean? Because over there, an oak is not... You know, again, I'm not like an expert on that, but like, you know, that the type of like a birch, it's not the same necessarily. And so now it's not only looking at this Sumerian word or this Akkadian word uh, or this Hebrew word and trying to say, OK, this is a one to one equivalent with this type of tree. But it's the type of tree that's there. Right. And it, it can be difficult to to line those things up. All that being said, like, I don't know. Again, I don't have a lot of experience, either historically or presently, with drugs. Um, I have seen a bong once, though. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: my God. Gosh. Fucking goodbye. I would love to see Josh smoking <laughs> a bong. That would be such a funny... Oh,
1: no. I mean, I wasn't smoking it. <laughs> no, no. I know, but I just... just yeah. You can you hit me up offline if
2: you want to hear about Josh and the old uh, Mary Jane. <laughs>
0: You know? <laughs> there is exactly one story. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I, I sent a private message, Josh, but I got one last question. Um, and I, I need to know this, right? So I'm up to Chapter 5 where it says um, uh, where you're going to talk about, like, the brutality, the genocide, the fun stuff, right, yeah. of the Old Testament. And I, and I just have to know. I just give me t- give me a spoiler is first samuel 15 is that actually killing infants like because i use it all the time to to talk about the inconsistency of christian morality when it comes to like things like pro-life or uh, anti whatever anti-lgbt stuff um i point out this scripture where they kill infants and, and stuff can you talk about that a little bit
1: yeah uh, so, for anybody that doesn't know, First Samuel 15 is sort of one of the go to texts that people use because it's a very clear divine command from Yahweh to Saul, King Saul, saying, Go and kill everybody men, women, children, infants. I'm on my way <laughs> <laughs> uh, down to the cattle,
0: right? And what did the cattle ever do? Yeah. As a as a vegetarian, slash vegan, that's I'm like that's ridiculous. Like, yeah. Anyway, keep going.
1: And the the problem is um, that what many Christian apologists want to do is say it's hyperbole. It's hyperbole. Um. So you know, like, and the example that they always give is, uh, you know, like our football team massacred the other football team. I didn't really kill anybody, right? It's just hyperbole. Um, And what they'll do is they'll cite other ancient Near Eastern sources, other ancient Near Eastern texts, for example, from like Sennacherib, and say, and say, (laughs) look, here is an example where he said he killed everybody, every living soul, but then he reorganized the district for the people that were there. Like, how did that happen, right? So it clearly doesn't mean that he killed everybody. And so that becomes this sort of justification for identifying this as hyperbole. Now, it, it, what I say in the book is that I, I keep hammers away from my four-year-old son. And the reason that I keep hammers away from him is because when he picks it up, everything becomes a nail, right? And so that's what I see happening with hyperbole and Christian apologists. Right. They 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 get this hyperbole hammer, right? And it's it becomes it's everywhere. Oh violence hyperbole. It's a high that's hyperbole. That's hyperbole. Okay. Is there hyperbole? Is,
2: is like there ancient and atheist?
1: There, right. Come on. And atheist. <laughs> um <Sounds> like, <laughs> is this something that happens in the ancient Near East? Absolutely. Do we see it in the Hebrew Bible? Yes, I think so. Does that mean that it's everywhere? No. And what I talk about in the book is there are certain, what you have to do is you have to look at the story itself and ask the question, what happens if this is hyperbole? What happens to the narrative itself? In the example of 1 Samuel 15, and there are other passages that we talk about, but just very briefly, in 1 Samuel 15, you have to ask the question, what's the hyperbole? Hmm because when you make the person articulate what is hyperbolic the narrative falls apart right so if they say oh well god's command to kill everybody was just hyperbole then why did
0: Saul get in trouble mm. right it, i mean it, it's also it, it bothers me so much too just to just to drunkenly interject but it bothers me so much when apologists do this because like like, for example, another one is like, you know, Jesus was supposed to return in his Jesus' lifetime, in his disciples' lifetime. It says it right there, right? And when you when you talk to apologists, they'll translate it to say the exact opposite of what it's saying. And that's essentially what, like, well, you know, with the, the, the killing of the infants and everyone. Did they kill everyone? Well, no, they didn't kill everyone. Okay, so you're saying that it's saying the exact opposite of what it says. It says it killed everyone. You're saying it didn't kill anyone. It didn't kill everyone.
2: Well, listen it's, it's gonna say Jesus whatever I want it to yeah. say
0: you know did I mean? Jesus did Jesus die on the cross or did he not die on the cross and that was all just hyperbole like where, where do you Maybe. draw the line and what measuring stick are you using and yeah, wherever really it works for me personally yeah that's what's really funny is. <laughs> is, is it's clear to me that these people are using some internal subjective understanding of morality to critique what they call objective morality. Thank God,
1: right? Thank God that at least in these places, thank Frank, that they're doing it here. (laughs) Like, thankfully, they're not saying, "Hey, slavery's here. We should do that." At least they're fighting it, right? They're, (laughs) they're, they're they're leaning on their own
0: understanding. Thanks for checking out Deep Drinks Podcast, where the drinks are deep and the conversation's deeper. Let me know what you think of the first live episode. Cheers.